News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What went wrong at Pearson Airport in Toronto this summer? It is a question that many Canadians have been asking, given the chaos that we have seen there. Mountains and mountains of luggage just sitting there, right? Flights cancelled, flights delayed. I mean, the airport has become an international poster for how not to run an airport in a major city. It has been a nightmare. And there are many questions about, well, how did this happen? Who allowed this to happen? Why wasn't somebody in charge to fix these things? And how can we avoid having this happen in the future? It's an embarrassment. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Duncan D, former Air Canada COO and an expert of transportation and policy. Duncan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Do you think this is embarrassing, seeing what's happened to Pearson Airport this summer? It's an absolute embarrassment for sure, not just for Pearson, but for uh, the entire country. It's something that's gained attention all around the world. The Wall Street Journal named Pearson the most delayed airport in the world. CNN reported the same. Uh, And sadly, number two was Montreal. So this is a problem that seems to have hit Canada worse than it has many other countries. Are there structural issues here, Duncan? Like, how did this happen? There are most definitely structural issues. When I sat on the Canada Transportation Act review panel in 2014-2015, the industry at the time had made its views very well known that they felt that there were structural issues on how the air transportation system was governed, but especially how the federal government handled its part of that air transportation system. The system has a lot of players, way too many players in it that are accountable to each other. So they don't really, you know, when 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 an, a problem takes place at an airport, the system right now encourages as opposed to discourages a lot of finger pointing. It seems like that is what's happening in this case, for sure. Uh, As soon as there was chaos, was there not one person or one agency with oversight to say, okay, we can whip this into shape? Well, you would think that the person or agency would be the Minister of Transport or Transport Canada. But the way the system is structured in this country is there isn't. Um, You have airport authorities, which are local entities owned by the federal government, but managed by some local group that's been appointed. You've got um, the air security agency, which isn't even the one responsible for regulating itself, but it's responsible for negotiating contracts with a variety of private service contractors. You've got Canada Customs, which is responsible for international arrivals. There's just a a mishmash of organizations that have a finger in the bowl, and none of them are ultimately ultimately responsible for what's going on. And those fingers ultimately just come out of the bowl to point fingers at each other. Oh, boy, that's so visual when you put it that way. Is there not, I think, you know, those regular people, those of us who are listening to this, we think, well, wait a minute, is there not like somebody who is the CEO of Pearson Airport? And in the end, isn't it that person's job to make sure the airport operates and functions well? Simi, that is an excellent question. The airport CEO is definitely responsible for how things operate at her airport. And if you look at the way her airport is governed, it's in itself a mishmash. You've got the federal government that appoints uh, a minority of board members. 
You've got the province that appoints a minority of board members. Local communities that are around the airport appoint another minority of board members. So there really isn't even a majority on the board that is controlled or accountable to any single nominator. So you've got this this situation, even within the airports themselves, which is a completely chaotic situation, and where you've got appointees from different groups looking at each other and wondering, well, who's ultimately going to be held to account? So has anybody been held to account over what's happened in Pearson? And does it, does it seem like they're even fixing things, Duncan? That's the other thing. It just feels like, oh, they figure traffic will ease off at some point if we have fewer flights. But what about the systemic problems here? See, I mean, that's the, that, that is the point that the, the article, I think, tried to get to. And it was a very extensive article. So have they fixed anything? No. Um, they've talked about fixing things. Last week, for example, the Minister of Transport tweeted out a graphic which said on-time performance. And then the graphic went on to say that 85% of flights were on time or left within an hour of scheduled time. And so you're thinking, okay, well, on time is now in Canada, a flight leaving within an hour of its scheduled time. That makes no sense. And then he was talking about, oh, how 85% of travelers are now screened um, at airport security within 15 minutes. But then photos came out of travelers in lines that were, you know, hundreds of meters long uh, the same day. And so clearly the situation is not resolved. The fixes are not sticking and the problems persist. Okay, so what is it going to take then, Duncan? Is it a complete overhaul of the kind of accountability system of who reports to who? See me, I think there are some short-term fixes that have to absolutely be made. Summer is ending in 19 days with Labor Day. So we're getting to a point where it's getting too late for the summer. But it's not too late to fix this for Thanksgiving and Christmas. There are some short-term fixes that have to be made, which clearly will address the chaos that we've seen this summer. In terms of something long-term, there have to be absolutely structural changes made to the way the air transportation system in Canada is governed. And so what we're seeing this summer is not something people couldn't predict. The only thing it did it is, is that it made it so obvious that the situation in Canada can no longer persist. Because we had warnings on this, didn't we? Like all during the pandemic, I know airlines were saying, listen, if we can't, we don't have the capacity airports. It feels like along the way there were warnings, but everybody seemed to ignore them. Oh, well, before the pandemic, I talked earlier about the Canada Transportation Act review, which I sat on, which um, actually a local Vancouver um, um, member chaired, uh, David Emerson, who's a former minister from the Vancouver area. He chaired that panel and we made recommendations with predictions that this is what was going to happen if those recommendations weren't implemented. Okay, so here we are post-pandemic. It's clearly broken then, Duncan. How do we fix this moving forward? So what would you tell the Minister of Transportation to do here? So I would basically make the lines of accountability very, very clear. Where does the buck stop? That means that for things like uh, air security, there has to be a single group, not the four, five, six groups that are responsible just for that one um, service, there has to be one single point of accountability just for the air security side. There, you know, the same goes for uh, the borders. It can't be you've got public health, you've got Canada Customs, you've got the RCMP. Everything has to be brought together. And ultimately, all of that has to flow up into a single person, and that has to be him. He, the Minister of Transport, 
he or she, whoever the Minister of Transport is, has to have the ultimate accountability for what happens at Canada's airports to end the finger pointing and buck passing that we see in Canada. It certainly is embarrassing, isn't it, Duncan? Like when you see these pictures splashed all over the world? It's horrific. It, and, you know, these pictures, Simi, aren't just about being embarrassed. This is about people's travel plans that they've invested a lot of money and time in completely ruined. Very true. Duncan, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. That's Duncan D, a former Air Canada COO and an expert in public transportation and policy, talking about the mess that has been Pearson Airport this summer. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. We are having a conversation this morning about our overdose crisis. It's a public health crisis. It's a public health emergency. has been for years. We don't seem to be making a dent at all or making any progress when it comes to preventing these deaths from happening. We are, once again, on our way to breaking a terrible record. More overdose deaths than we have ever had before. We heard from the BC Coroner Service yesterday that the preliminary numbers show in the first six months of this year alone, more than 1,095 people died from toxic drugs. So what needs to be done to save lives? Well, joining us now is Susan Sanderson, the Executive Director of Realistic Success Recovery Society. Susan, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Good morning. I'm sure you've spent a lot of time talking about this, Susan, but from your perspective, what are we not doing to make a difference here? Well, I think that we're actually doing all the things that can be done. Uh, the, um, it's multifaceted. It's not simple. And it costs a huge amount of money to actually do what needs to be done. What, do you th- what is that, though, when you say what needs to be done? Well, well, I I don't think that there is one simple answer. Um, you know, you originally uh, called me about the regulations for our supportive recovery houses, um, which need work, which which did get some work and now need some more refining. We need more money for those people who are in supportive recovery. Um, our organization is seven hundred and twenty dollars short every day we operate. We have to find that money somewhere. The other issue is that for those people who are working, and I think that many of the people who um, are showing up in the coroner's report, unfortunately, are people who are working, who don't use drugs regularly, who are so-called recreational users, and um, are are not necessarily, who, who in a way think that they're invincible in the same way that many people in their 30s and 40s think that, you know, they're going to live a a very long and and healthy life. Um, And if those people, for instance, if those people who are working part-time or working full-time but don't have a very good disability plan or a long-term extended care plan can't get treatment, there is nowhere for them to go. So for the very wealthy, there are private treatment facilities. And for those people who have have left nothing, who have um, destroyed most of the the things in their lives with their addiction, there are places like ourselves to go that are supported by the Ministry of Social Development and Poverty Reduction. Um, But those folks in between, there is nowhere for them to go for help. Counseling costs a lot of money. It's at least 150 to $200 uh, an hour. 
So counseling needs to be an MSP uh, bought service that it is not going to break your bank. Um, I like the idea that was raised earlier um, that uh, Vaughn Palmer talked about from David Eby about supports in emergency rooms for people who've been brought in under an overdose and then are just released. That was part of the recommendations from the coroner's death panel report of a couple of years ago. Uh, but if you think about what would have to happen in an emergency room for people to have those kinds of supports available, somebody to talk to, a psychiatrist, an assessment, we are talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars. I've wondered that myself too. Like the, the people who are overdosing, we've heard time and time again, as, as you just described them, they're, you know, they're men between the ages of 18 and 49. And I don't think they feel like this overdose crisis is about them, Susan. Do you I, agree? Uh, yes, I would agree. Because the pictures, the images that are broadcast on every newscast that goes along with the story are the folks that are in an alley. Well, that's not them. They don't live in an alley. They have nothing to do with alleys yeah. other than park a car, right? They, that, that does not reflect them at all. So um, it, it's just the same way as when people talk about the gang wars, they don't think about the fact that all the people living around them who are using drugs recreationally every weekend at a party or to go to a sports event are part of what's fueling the gangs and their drug money, right? Right. They, see themselves as part of that equation. There's a disconnect. Yes, yes, absolutely. I I think we really need to to turn and to use different images when we're talking about this story and and to start talking about the people who are actually dying uh, from overdoses because this government has, has done many, many, many different amazing positive things to try and turn this around. Right. Of where we were in 2017, um, and yet it's it's not enough because um, people, you know, young people, you know, who are 12 or 13 today, who are, you know, or were 12 or 13 in 2017, are now entering that age where they're going to maybe start smoking pot and doing other things, and and it's all got fentanyl in them. Well, you said it was so well, though, when you said people are going to go out this weekend, they're going to have a good time. Maybe they're going to take some recreational drugs at a party, but yeah. they're, they are the ones at risk. But they, they yeah. don't think they are. They think that the people on the downtown east side, but you know what? People on the downtown east side are not dying of overdoses at the same rate. No, no, no absolutely. Because they're safe protection sites, they've got testing, they've, yeah. Yeah, and, and they're together in a community. So how do we get through to those people who are our friends and our neighbors and the people that we know who don't think this is them? Well, I, I, I think we just keep talking about it. You think eventually they'll figure that out? I feel like they need, they'll have a brush with it'll be somebody they know or it'll be them and then they might realize. Buddy, you know, it's like, I mean, all of our clients, you know, we have 35 men in our facilities. Every one of them knows that if they relapse and go out and use, there's a really big chance they're going to die. Does that stop them? No. No. This is a, an obsessive, compulsive disease. 
And until you start to deal with the trauma or this whatever created the situation that that got this person to use drugs and alcohol and or alcohol as a way to cover up the emotional pain that caused it, you are not going to stop that obsession and that compulsion. So is that, so you like what you heard then when it comes to David Eby saying, listen, if these people come, if even one accidental, and I put that in air quotes, accidental overdose, if they're in an emergency room, then they are now in the system and we have to pursue them to talk about how this happened. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, people have to really understand what that one sentence means. You know, like, just imagine what that means. You need a psychiatrist. You need a support worker. You need, um, you know, you need the initial assessment. And then you need someone. If they say, yes, okay, I'm ready for recovery, then you need somewhere to put them. Yeah. Then you need a really good um, ethical um, recovery facility that's going to offer them at least a year. At least a year. Yeah, that is so true. Susan, there's so many issues here that, you know, that we have to dive into. But I thank you very much for your time this morning. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Important conversation that Susan Sanderson, that is honesty right there. That's the executive director of Realistic Success Recovery Society. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. We are discussing this morning the overdose crisis and what needs to be done. And that conversation that we just had there is so important because Susan's absolutely right. There is such a serious disconnect between the people who are actually dying in this crisis, that is the people who are overdosing, versus the people who are paying attention to this crisis. So you see the pictures on the TV and there's this mentality that people think that it's happening somewhere else. Oh, it's happening on the downtown east side. Oh, it's happening over there. Nope, it is happening in your neighborhood. The number one demographic where victims are being claimed by this crisis are men aged 18 to 49. And they're dying by themselves in private residences. They're taking drugs recreationally, and this is what happens to them. We're talking more about this now with our next guest. Michael Gray is with us, the founder and chair of the Fentanyl Awareness Coalition. Michael, thanks for being here. Thank you, Simi. Nice to be with you again. Well, what? maybe. Yeah, nice to have you me, back. You don't call me over the best subjects, but it's nice to speak with you anyway. Uh, you know what? It would, it. it would be lovely if we did have something else that we could talk about, Michael. But yes. unfortunately, these numbers are so horrific to look at. And yet when we talk to you, Michael, does anything change? Is the message changing at all? I don't believe so. My message isn't changing. Uh, what needs to change is people's perspe- perception of the crisis, called the crisis, Uh, My message about that hasn't changed. We are slowly but surely trying to get that message out there. But I think even in in your in your lead up in the story, when you talk about the overdose crisis, the truth is it's not an overdose crisis. It's not an addiction crisis, which I I saw on the coroner's report. There was a video by uh, this guy, Philichoa, who does a lot of work for advocating for solutions. And even he said it's not an addiction crisis. It's an illicit drug toxicity issue. Right. But I would go even deeper than he goes, probably. What he would say is it's not the addiction part of the of the thing that's in crisis. It's it's this new deadly drug that kills those addicted. But I'd argue that the even those the overdose deaths to the addicted are not in crisis. Crisis is a Greek word that it's based in a sudden change to things. There is no crisis in, in, in addiction or overdose. 
the crisis is in the expansion of fentanyl as an opioid out into the more recreational users of opioid drugs who would not have been killed prior to uh, fentanyl because they would have used pills on the street, which were at that time generally legal pills, uh, not legal in the way they're taking them, but certainly legal pharmaceutical-grade tablets. Now they're almost certainly fake pills made out of fentanyl, and it's it's just statistical shot in the dark whether you get the one that had a lot of the stuff in the mix or a little in the mix and if you got one of the wrong ones you're going to die that's not a person who's addicted and that's not an overdose that's a poisoning and that person is not an addict so i would argue that the crisis that we want to recognize is not a crisis of addiction in the truest sense and it's not a crisis of overdose in the truest sense because overdoses happen to addicted people who are attempting to take the drug they normally take and they take too much and die. That's tragic and that's terrible. And and that needs to be dealt with. And that is being dealt with. The problem is we've got the crisis part, which is a very different dynamic, no better, no worse, no more tragic, no less tragic, but totally different and needing different solutions. And we have yet as a public here in the U S and Canada to recognize that dynamic. See, that's, so we continue, I'm yeah, sorry, but uh, we continue to do everything we can about overdose and addiction, but we're not addressing that other part. Okay, that's what I'm wondering about. So that's so interesting. So we're, we've tried so many things, and I think if this were, if fentanyl were not in the equation, all those other things that we have been trying would probably have more success, but it, it is fentanyl that is the problem, and do you feel that's not getting talked about enough? Right, I think fentanyl is. That's my point. I think we've won that battle. I say from our Fentanyl Awareness Coalition, I think we've won the battle of putting the word fentanyl into the lexicon and people understanding that this has changed things. I think what they don't understand is that, look, if fentanyl stayed as a mimic to heroin, diacetylmorphine, if it stayed in that facsimile that it came out in, we could not, we wouldn't get to tragic, uh, excuse me, crisis numbers because there are limited numbers of people who use powdered opioid shooting, snorting, or smoking in an addicted, chronic use manner. What happened was by putting it into pills, you, you, you basically vectored fentanyl's death potential into a market that's probably tenfold bigger. That's the part people don't really understand. Right. I think we understand that fentanyl is a different animal. I think what we don't understand is that fentanyl has a higher death rate than heroin, but it has a way to reach people that heroin didn't reach before. Right. You uh, see? And that's okay. the real crisis. Michael, listen, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Thank you for ta- taking the time, and I, I look forward to being on any time you need me, Simi. We you will so definitely be calling you again. Michael Gray, founder and chair at the Fentanyl Awareness Coalition. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. A wolf on the loose? Yes, that is the situation. Officials and conservation officers say they are still looking for at least one wolf at large following an incident, let's say, at the Greater Vancouver Zoo that saw some wolves escape. This is why the zoo was unexpectedly closed yesterday. And according to a statement from them, the details about the way the wolves got out are suspicious. And again, this is according to the zoo. They believe it is due to what they call malicious intent. Now, zoo staff are saying most of the wolves are back in their care, but their number is a small number of wolves remain on the loose. So conservation office says one, 
Zoo is saying small number of wolves. What is going on here? Well, to help us kind of figure this out, joining us now is Chantal Archambault, who's a communications director at the Vancouver Humane Society. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So what do we know about this? What have you heard about what's going on out there? Um, so we know that um, we've heard that there there is at least one wolf on loose. Conservation officers were present. Um, and it is very concerning that these wolves were able to escape. Um, it's very concerning for the safety of the staff, the public, and the wolves. And it's important to note this is not an isolated incident at the zoo. The Greater Vancouver Zoo has a history of concerning incidents involving the animals they keep. Uh, in the past few years alone, if we just look at a snapshot, the, there was a black bear that bit a child in 2019. There were concerns raised about an emaciated moose who was then euthanized in 2020. A jaguar bit a zoo employee in 2021. So we see that repeatedly animals and zoo staff and visitors have all been put at risk. So this is a very concerning situation. And it's also yet another incident in a pattern of incidents that have all raised concerns about the well-being of the animals at the zoo. Now, Chantal, given your work at the Humane Society, then, has there been an effort and engagement with the zoo about how the animals are or what's going on there? And how does that work? Yes, the uh, the Vancouver Humane Society has been raising these concerns with the zoo for a number of years. Uh, we reached out in 2019 with a report that we commissioned from ZooCheck, which outlined many animal welfare concerns at the zoo, um, including animals showing stereotypic repetitive behaviors, uh, animals in small barren enclosures, uh, including a lack of complexity and enrichment in the wolf enclosure. And yet we continue to see these same issues raised in the report. And that's why earlier this year, the Vancouver Humane Society submitted a cruelty report because of those signs that animals were suffering of stress and boredom and frustration. Uh, we believe it's clear from the, the pacing and the repetitive behaviors of the animals and also the unnatural conditions of the enclosures that the zoo is not equipped to meet the complex needs of those wild animals. Okay, so then what... How do, what are the next steps here with that then? What can the Humane Society do? Is there any kind of mechanism that would have somebody or some organization go in and make sure that there is some kind of standard of care happening here? What we're currently doing is we're recommending that the BC government change regulations. Um, and what that would do is address the bringing of new animals in captivity, but it would also ensure that the animals already in captivity have their needs met. Um, so on a practical level with somewhere like the zoo, we would love to see those facilities moving away from the keeping of animals in permanent captivity for education and entertainment toward more of a sanctuary model that would allow for the rescue, rehab and release of native wildlife. And we believe that would also give those facilities a greater capacity to meet the needs of the animals in their care because they would have fewer species to house. So is there enough oversight right now of this of an organization like that? Um, currently, the oversight is um, CASA, and we believe that our, our reports and photos over the course of a number of years show that that accreditation doesn't necessarily translate into better welfare for captive animals because CASA is a self-regulating industry group. Uh, they 
don't have legal authority to conduct investigations into cruelty with an outcome that would create case law for future situations. And there's really no incentive for them to improve the welfare of animals beyond what the public demands. Right. What is that group? What is CAVA? Uh, it's the Canadian Accreditation of Zoos and Aquariums. Ah, okay. So that's the only thing. So once they get that accreditation, is there follow-up or anything like that? Essentially, um, there there's not effective follow-up. Right. Okay. So then since this has happened in the last 24 hours, Chantel, like what, what are you hearing? Do you feel this is a way to get this conversation, a needed conversation going again? It's definitely a really important opportunity for residents to speak up about um, the needs of animals in captivity. We're encouraging the public to engage with their MLAs right now to uh, let them know that the welfare of captive wild animals is a priority for residents um, because this has been going on for many years and this is just the latest in, in a long series of incidents. All right. Well, Chantel, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. We appreciate that. Chantel Archambault, who's the communications director at the Vancouver Humane Society. They are raising concerns. They've continued to raise concerns about the Greater Vancouver Zoo. That has been going on for quite some time there. And now this latest case has them back in the news, this time with wolves at large. They say that a small number of wolves remain on the loose. And I should mention here that uh, Langley RCMP are saying if any members of the public actually identify some of those wolves in the vicinity of the zoo there, uh, you're encouraged to keep your distance and report that immediately uh, to their report all poachers and polluters line, which is called the RAP line, R-A-P-P, and just let them know that you have seen them. How many are there? This is what I was wondering. Well, how many were there to begin with? Well, according to the zoo, they have nine wolves and six cubs in their care, but they're not saying exactly how many got out or what happened there. It was closed yesterday. There was RCMP on scene. There were conservation officers on scene. Uh, trying to figure out what exactly happened there. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. Z Point Days are twice as good at Zellers because... The lowest price is the law. With free valuable club Z Point. Is the law. Boy, did that ever just bring back memories for me where the lowest price is the law. Remember that? Well, if you're of a certain age, you remember those are Zellers commercials there. Now, this morning, we are hearing that that brand is about to be revived. In fact, Hudson's Bay is saying they're going to debut a new e-commerce website and actually expand the brick-and-mortar Zeller's footprint, too, within select Bay department stores. And this is going to start happening in early 2023. So can they do this? Can they revive a brand that for many Canadians was a real, like a stop for them. They had to go to Zellers. Well, joining us now is David Ian Gray, marketing expert with Dig360. David, thanks for being back with us. Yeah, glad you have me on, uh, Simi. Good to talk to you again. Now, let me ask you, what do you think about this news? Can Zellers be revived? Well, when I, there were sort of rumblings of this, I think it was about a year ago, um, the Bay was doing some pop-ups 
<laughs> pop-up events with uh, the Zellers brand, and it just brought a smile to me, and it reminded me of back in, I'm old enough to remember the Eaton's uh, yes. uh, saga toward the end, and, and they, they started doing sort of these um, kind of random events around the Eaton's brand, and there's a context to this, which is um, the Bay, as we've been following and people have kind of seen the stores, uh, they've been really struggling uh, the last, before the pandemic and then through the pandemic. And there's a lot of financial pressure on the uh, on the chain uh, to liquidate real estate or find other ways to make use of, of, of a lot of committed uh you know holdings in terms of physical stores so i think they're sitting around saying what do we do with stores we're in an environment where the economy is uh uncertain at best you know with with some inflation and uh, possible recession and there's never-ending consumer drive to to try and balance budgets and uh and and get some discounted product so I can see the idea from the Hudson Bay side where they might think, okay, we're going to pivot some of our efforts into discount, but instead of starting a whole brand from scratch and all the effort that takes to build that up, why don't we just resuscitate uh, Zellers? I think there is some nostalgia. We all, And I even smiled, you know, yeah, exactly. I, as I said. There, there's some nostalgia with it. Uh, so I don't I don't know if it's a bad move. If they're going to go discount anyway, why not make a go of that? But the one thing is, if we all think back to prior to Target coming in um, on the scene, we, we'd pretty well had it with with Zellers because we'd seen what Walmart can could offer, and Zellers was just slipping badly by that point. And uh, with with Target, everyone the Canadians were really excited about Target coming to town. <laughs> yeah, and then they blew it though, right? Because well, the Target that they, they knew, and that was the thing, we already knew what Target was all about, was not the Target that showed up here. No, but funny story. Just as a tangent, is um, Zellers played a pivotal role in the reshaping of Canadian, the Canadian retail landscape because it was actually Zellers stores that got sold by Richard Baker on the Bay to Target in the States to enable them to, to jumpstart a footprint in Canada. And yes, they, they, they really blew the execution of that. It was never like what we expected it to be based on our cross border shopping, but that move had a domino effect that actually led Sears to kind of panic and they sold off flagships, which became the Nordstrom footprint right. in Canada. So this whole kind of thing happened. And now, you know, I've, 10, 15 years later, we're looking at sellers coming back. It's an interesting story. It really is. So is there enough nostalgia, though, David, to support a return, do you think, a revival of the sellers brand? Well, all the nostalgia will do is get create a little bit of interest. But just like we saw with Target, consumers are not stupid, right? Like, we we know what we want. And um, if our expectations are are out of whack with reality where it's going to show up. And so just like we rejected target after we saw what it became at the end of the day, the idea of having really good quality as best quality product at low price as possible in the discount end of the spectrum is going to have to match up with the Walmarts um, 
of the world. And and they're doing an online aspect to this. There's the dot-com part of sellers. That's going to have to line up with everything from Amazon to all sorts of other marketplaces. So it, it'll really be about the execution of this, whether it works. And I don't think that's necessarily easy. Like that's a very competed space at discount and it takes a, uh, it, it's a unique area of retail, but I can understand completely why Hudson Bay company would want to take a look at this. And if they are doing discount, why not take a shot right. at at, at this brand play. Okay, so from your perspective, then looking at this from a modern retail landscape, David, what do they have to do besides just slapping the seller's name on it to make it successful? Yeah, I mean that's such a good question because uh, I guess I'm a little cynical at this point in time, um, in that I don't think there's a shortage of stuff for Canadian consumers to access, right? Like I, I can't imagine between Amazon and, and all everyone who's out there right now, the incumbent crowd, um, there's not obvious scarcity of things to choose from. So I think the first uh, idea would be take advantage of location. The one thing that uh, Hudson Bay has going for it is still physical locations. And I think if they're smart about where those are, and if they're, they're in areas that don't have easy access to your Costco's and your Walmart's, um, those would be the first I would re- convert over. Um, in terms of trying to compete there online, yeah, sure, hype the brand, uh, make a nostalgia ad campaign, but I- I'm really at a loss, as I say, because I don't think they're going to be able to do anything cheaper than others are doing it. And what's going to be different about the assortment? But I, th- I-, I just... I, yeah, I think they're really up against, I, I can see them getting a lot of interest in the first uh, six months. And wow. then I, I, I just don't know if they're going to, if it's going to mean much. Yeah, just ask Target, that. right? Just ask Target what happened. Uh, David, thank you so much for your time this morning. You're welcome, Simi. Good to chat. Yeah, it's David Ian Gray, marketing expert and retailing expert with Dig360, talking about the revival of the Zellers brand. He's absolutely right. Sure, they're going to get a lot of attention for that. But if you go to check it out based on sentimental value alone, you think, oh, I used to love Zellers. And you go, if your first or second visit to the website or the brick and mortar store isn't what you'd hoped or doesn't exceed your expectations, are you going to go back? That is the question. The retail landscape is so competitive out there.